Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to GCSE English Revision Pod with myself, Mr. Galley, and my good friends, Mr. Forster. How are you doing today? Hello. Um, and you'll be grateful to know, dear listener, that we are indeed social distancing and there are hundreds of miles between us. Yeah, we couldn't be more socially distanced, really, which is, uh, as I've mentioned before, which is very much how I like my relationship with you. <laughs> but it was, um, well, but, not, yeah. not those dark days in my car, early mornings before school. No, they, um, they were, yeah, they were some good recordings, weren't they, in your, in your car? They, um, the, the sound quality provided was, um, was good, I thought. But yeah, this is, this is okay. We can, we can continue providing content like this. And if you are joining us for the first time, this is not a podcast where we just talk about times when we uh, used to hang out in Mr. Forster's car. This is a podcast where <laughs> every episode we break down how we would write a single essay based on a possible GCSE style question. Okay. Each episode comes with a completely free handout, which can be downloaded uh, from the description of this episode. If you have accessed this via our website, englishrevisionpod.co.uk, you will find the handouts there. If you are now listening in a podcast app, then all you've got to do is go to the description of this episode and you will find a link to the handout, which has the key vocabulary, the quotations we would use in our essay, the analysis we would do of those quotations, and of course, the relevant AO3 contextual ideas as well. well it's a, I thought you were going to come in there, sir, but you left oh, me. You left me sorry. hanging like a like a <laughs> fish on the line. <laughs> the window. That, that wouldn't have happened back in the car. You would have jumped in then with some kind of witty consolidation of everything I've just said. You would. Have, you would have. What been... Mr. Galley said. Do it. Yeah, well, I mean that was that was terrible, but we we must we must carry on. So today we're bringing you another Inspector Calls episode, um, where we are going to look at the character of Gerald. Is that right? Yeah. So the question we're going to look at today is how do you respond to Priestley's depiction of Gerald in Inspector Calls? Fantastic. Right, it's a simple character question, but character questions just because they sound simple, it does not mean that there is a simple essay to be written. Characters are just as intricate as themes they're just as interesting as theme questions and actually you end up exploring multiple themes through the representation of a character normally would you say that's uh, that's how you put this essay together Mr Forster yeah well I think the crucial thing always to think about is that when we're writing an essay we're constructing an argument we're not simply saying here's one thing about Gerald here's another thing about Gerald we're trying to get to the to grips with we're exploring what could Priestley be saying about society through his depiction of Gerald here's one thing he could be saying here's another so we're 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 constructing an argument 
That's um, that is uh, a very very good way of putting it. And yeah, it's it's the classic way to get yourself stuck around those middle grades, isn't it? It's if you if you want to get beyond the the fives and sixes into those sevens, eights, and nines, you have to be making an argument. You cannot just say one thing that Gerald does is this. Another thing we see Gerald do is this, and this is what it means. You have to talk about what has Priestley used the character of Gerald to teach us about the um, the world, right? What has um, Priestley used this character for in order for us to learn? And this is why we bang on every episode about a thesis statement. Rather than calling it an introduction where you just tell me what the text's about and give me some banal facts, what a thesis statement is trying to encourage you to do by using that language is to set up an argument. Um, to set up to to start your exam essay by by giving the examiner a sense of well so what why is this important what's Priestley saying why is he saying it yeah very much so and that, and would you I think we can jump straight in we only we only brought out an episode on inspectacles very recently so I don't think we need to spend too much time on that I think we can jump straight yeah. into your thesis statement so, thesis statement is this in Priestley's 1945 play in inspectacles Gerald Croft the aristocratic fiance of Sheila Burling is presented in ambivalent terms that means mixed both good and bad right. that's to say whilst he's egotistic and narcissistic and has no real moral or social epiphany he does nonetheless show genuine emotion and feeling when learning of Eva Smith's death in this way he seems to represent people that for Priestley, whilst clearly having positive qualities, are not yet ready for change, not yet ready to take on the social responsibility he believed was necessary for a better future. So in a sense, you're kind of saying that Gerald is someone who could be a good person if they were willing to learn the lessons that need to be learned. There's good in him, right? There's He's, he's not a purely... He's not a pure moral vacuum with nothing good to say about him, but he's someone who cannot truly become a good person because he's not willing to learn lessons that need to be learned yeah a bit like yourself i I mean (laughs) incredibly incredibly cruel to say when when i'm here trying to try to help you through this (laughs) incredibly tricky time i don't think people are even listening to this anymore i think this is is talking in a vacuum coping with difficult uh, situations um but yeah my son's made up some imaginary friends during this quarantine period so i think this is kind of our equivalent talking to someone (laughs) my uh my little sister had an imaginary friend called a hem hem and she used to do she was just basically a vehicle of blame so one time my sister drew in crayon all over the wall uh, (laughs) i remember my mum came in and uh, my sister was just like oh hem hem did it but really like she was so she was so convinced that that was a that was actually going to get her out of trouble. It was very it was very sweet to see uh, to see her complete belief in her plan of just blaming it on this non-existent person. But yeah, my mum was able to see through it in the end. Well, in our case, it's mostly um, a, a humpback whale that appears at various points through the day. Um, that oh, that's an amazing one. He then has to go off and feed it um, plankton um, or krill. It's um, amazing. What a fantastic imaginary friend to have on the scene. He's like, look, a humpback whale. Anyway, we're getting off the point. So slightly. Um, let's. So our argument, we're looking at the presentation of, of Gerald. And our overall argument is that he's, he's presented in ambivalent terms, both positive and negative. So our first paragraph, our first section of the essay, we're going to look at this. So from the beginning of the play, Priestley emphasises Gerald's privilege and power as an urbane aristocrat in late Edwardian society. 
So to put that in layman's terms, he's a bit of a man about town, Gerald. His life is pretty enjoyable. He's able to sort of swagger around Brumley, enjoying all the perks of being a rich, attractive young man at the time. Yeah. So urbane is a really useful adjective for Gerald. It means like refined, courteous, a bit like, a bit like me. Um, mm. <laughs> um, but I think the crucial thing here is that if you look at the opening stage directions, he's described as an attractive chap of about 30, a dandy, an easy bred young man about town. And um, what do they suggest to you, Mr. Gully? Those stage well, I think, I mean, life's been quite good to him, right? You know, we, we can infer from the word attractive that he's perhaps taken advantage of this attractiveness. He's perhaps enjoyed himself with the woman of the town, which is certainly consolidated by the uh, word dandy, which means like a kind of would would player be um, yeah. the, the closest modern equivalent. Yeah. Womanizer. Womanizer. So clearly someone who's aware of his own attractiveness and plays yeah. upon it. Plays um, upon it. And uh, yeah, life has not been cruel to old Gerald, has he? He's not really struggled. He's not suffered much hardship i don't think he's enjoyed all the treats that life has brought him he's enjoyed both from his gender and his social class i think the latter point about his social class is important from the first line of the play the first line of the play is mr burling um the ingratiating mr burling so that's he's trying to get the approval of someone telling gerald that um the port he has is the same as as that bought by lord croft gerald's father he goes on to say that you're the kind of son-in-law I always wanted. There's the sense that even though Mr. Burling is older than Gerald, even though Mr. Burling is wealthy, as an upper middle class man, he sees Gerald as this aspirational figure. Right. So that's interesting, isn't it? Because that tells us that essentially money is king, right? Not not age. The um... Not even just money, because actually Mr. Burling is probably as wealthy as the Crofts. It's more yes. social class is king. So is actually that... it's the established order that's the really important thing. It's where you are put in society. Um, yeah, where you're really born matters. into. And we've seen this yeah. actually, we talked about this in an earlier episode about the comparison. The best way to see social class in late Edwardian society is watch Titanic. And watch that scene when the American woman who's new money has dinner with the, arist- the English aristocrats and how they all look down on her and mock yeah. her. It's a, and in, in that as well, she turns out to be the only one of them with a bit of decency to her as well, isn't there? There's that bit when they're in the lifeboats and she's like, I don't know what's wrong with any of you trying to get the, I mean, I just don't really say it in that voice. I don't know why I did that. But she she's the only one who attempts to get them to go back to um, get the people out of the water. Yeah. And so I think let's kind of then look a little bit more at Gerald then. So Gerald himself, he's aware of the social stratification of early 20th century uh-huh. um, so he's he's aware of his class. He, he, when the inspector's asking him, he says, we're respectable citizens and not criminals, as if to suggest that your social class makes your, your moral character. So this is yeah, a exactly. fallacy. And even you, if you do a crime, you're not a criminal because you're not of the lower class. You know, yeah. you're, you're a... You're a well-off person who did a crime. You're not a criminal. That's quite interesting. Isn't and it's, it? it's a fallacy that even still exists today. People see white-collar crime as being somehow less bad than yeah. than 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 someone going to your living room and stealing your TV. And yet, the the white-collar criminal, the middle-class criminal, might have stolen millions of pounds from a hedge fund. And yet, somehow, it's not seen as bad, is it? It's that, that same. It's mm. that it's that suggestion that because of his social class, he couldn't be a criminal. Um, yeah, absolutely. We see also his power and privilege in his treatment of women. We talked about this in our last podcast, and this is a great way, um, dear listeners, of, of, of remi- reminding yourselves that actually there's lots of crossover between your different essays. So in our essay on gender that we talked about in our last episode, we looked at Gerald's treatment of women. And actually, we can use the same quotations again here in this paragraph um, that Gerald, when he, he talks about Eva Smith, he says that he hates hard eyed women. 
And he loves mm-hmm. Eva for having soft, dark hair and big brown eyes. He calls yeah. her fresh and young. And what did we say about these in the last episode, Mr. Galley? We said that essentially it's um, the the eyes are serving as a metaphor for how he likes women to be. He doesn't want them to be hard. He doesn't want them to challenge him or to, um, you know, have a bit of uh, fight and sort of strength to their personalities. He likes them to be soft. And we use the keyword submissive, which means to sort of um, give in to someone easily. Right. And it's Priestley is using Gerald to represent this idea that men of the time particularly men of a certain social class were able to take advantage both of women and also particularly of women of a lower social class than themselves yeah so we see the patriarchal structures of late edwardian society we see also that he recognizes she was intensely grateful to him he was the Mm. most important person in the world to her so just like eric's treatment of her eric's later rape of her what we see in this what we're arguing in this first paragraph is that gerald's privilege and power brings him um uh, so sorry, Gerald's um, social class brings him privilege and power. Interesting, interesting. So he's there. Remember, Priestley didn't invent him for the sake of it. Priestley invented him for a reason. He created that character for a reason. And the first point of our essay we're saying is that he created him to show us this privilege in society, to show us how if you were born into a certain group, you were able to take advantage of that position. Yeah. So then our second paragraph, we're then going to look at this more, the, the ambivalence in Priestley's portrayal, the sense that he's not just negative. There is a more sympathetic side where we, you know, so, however, when Gerald learns of Daisy Renton's tragic suicide, Priestley engages with a more sympathetic side of his character as he shows genuine emotion, unlike the older Burlings. Good. Nice. Because I think, because that's the crucial point, unlike Mr. and Mrs. Burling, who don't seem to show any emotion that Eva Smith's died, he does actually. He says in Act Two, it really hit me. He says, in that case, pause, as I'm rather more, pause, upset by this business than I probably appear to be. And, well, I'd like to be alone for a while. I'd be glad if you'd let me go. You don't necessarily need to learn that whole quotation because obviously this is a closed book exam. But you could just talk about how when he talks to the inspector about it really hitting him, we see the emotion in the fact that his sentences, his syntax um, breaks down with all of these pauses. And what's that mm. showing about him when he's talking about Eva Smith's death? But it seems genuine, doesn't it? It seems, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. It seems he genuinely um, is having a strong emotional reaction to her death, un- unlike the others. Yeah, he's lost, who, um, he's lost his eloquence. He's lost his power of speech. He's lost that easy way that he had with people that Mr. Burling so right. aspired to. So we, we do sort of begin to perhaps sympathise slightly because we think, OK, well, he is someone who genuinely, um, who at least cares now. I mean, it's perhaps not much, but it is something. Yeah. Um, and we see also this in, the, in his own narrative of his time with Daisy Renton. Whilst we que- clearly question the power imbalance in their relationship, particularly as modern audiences, actually, you know, he talks about it, saying a, a glance that was nothing less than a cry for help. You know, that's what how he describes seeing her in the palace bar among mm. the women of the town, a euphemism for prostitutes. The, this kind of frames his actions, as Sheila puts it, as if he's a wonderful fairy prince, as if he's part of a fairy tale, as if he is a hero. Um, And the interesting question you can ask yourself or the interesting piece of analysis you can do at this point is even if his even if his actions were coming from perhaps a selfish place, they were still kind of good actions. And that's why it becomes quite a complicated um, thing to read Gerald's character. Right. Because even even though he did it because he was attracted to her and he was egotistically excited about being the knight in shining armour. 
he still did help her, right? He still brought positive things to her life, which then allows you to explore how how much of a negative character he therefore is. Yeah, because um, you know, he he justifies himself to the inspector trying to acknowledge that he's honourable by saying, I want you to understand that I didn't install her there so I could make love to her. I was sorry for her. I didn't ask for anything in return. Yeah, of course. Is, irony, I mean, uh, difficult to believe that really, isn't it? But certainly it shows that, you know, particularly in the wake of the Me Too movement, um, this is clearly problematic, particularly when the inspector says that at least he had some affection for her and made her happy for a time. There is this, there's something deeply problematic about his character, but at least, um, particularly to modern audiences, as I said, but at least there's some element of empathy, some element of genuine care in his actions. Yeah, it's um, it's hard to defend Gerald, I think, but remember you're not being you're not being assessed on your uh morals you know it's not an exam which says are you a good person or not you know so you can explore you can explore a more sympathetic interpretation of gerald even actually, if you don't happen to think he deserves it you know even a great if way to do that is to, yeah. well, sorry no no well, go on i said the great way to do that with your language is to use words like perhaps and you could see how Precy perhaps seems to suggest or how audiences could sympathize because you don't have to say that it makes you sympathize although so that kind of like tentative language is really useful in yeah. this context yeah absolutely and yeah and it, it opens you up to multiple interpretations and as we've said several times before on this podcast interpreting the same thing in different ways is a lovely shortcut to getting really high grades because you're automatically coming up with a kind of um, evaluating evaluative argument absolutely you're evaluating well you could see it in this way but another way of reading it is this you're not committing yourself necessarily to either of those viewpoints but you're exploring how both of those viewpoints are possible and the place where i commit myself to viewpoint generally is my conclusion that's where i say well of all these things i've been saying well here's actually what i think here's the effect on me reading it or watching it as a in the 21st century it's funny that that's the point where you commit, as I imagine most of our listeners have switched off long before we ever get to the conclusion. So they, they probably never actually hear what you genuinely believe about anything. Um, so section three of our essay. Crucially, unlike Sheila and Eric, Gerald lacks any real social or moral epiphany, choosing, like the older Bort Burlings, to ignore the inspector's socialist message. Yes. So this is interesting, isn't it? Because when they arrive at the crossroads at the end of the play, which is, of course, the revelation that Eva Smith, Daisy Renton might not actually be dead, might not be the same person. Gerald goes the wrong way, right? Safe to say that, that while Eric and Sheila come to understand that actually, whether it was one girl, whether she even died, doesn't change anything, doesn't change the fact that we all behave terribly. Gerald comes down on the other side of the argument, which is, well, actually, no, this is an opportunity to get ourselves out of trouble. Yeah. So we see. So he's he, you know, he turns to Sheila and says, everything's all right now. Now, how about this ring? You know, he tried as if to suggest that his actions, which certainly he did do, um, were unimportant now that he's learned that perhaps Gould wasn't a police officer and that there was no proof it was the same photograph and therefore no proof that it was the same girl. We see he's he's failed to listen to the inspector's message about fire and blood and anguish. And note the arrogance that comes dripping back into his words. He doesn't say. Sheila, I'm so sorry. You know, I, this I've betrayed you. I've um, it must have been horrific for you to find out in this way. But would you please consider <laughs> taking this ring back? You know, is there any oh, chance that you can still imagine marrying me? What about a ring then? You know, what, what an arrogant pig! <laughs> 
know. It's quite a funny moment when you think of those terms, isn't it? Yeah, goodness and, me. And this ties in with something that I've banged on about before, which is the influence of Aspensky's theory on Priestley. So Aspensky was... Oh, yeah, I really like this argument. I was, <laughs> do you know what? I was um, teaching this to my class recently and I could not remember the name of him for the life of me. And I went, I went on and on about this theory. And then I was like, okay, now for your homework, I'd like you to research... And yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't find it anywhere. So yeah, how are you spelling? Um, for um, so if the listeners the sheet, want to look it up in more detail, of course, it's on, it's on that but yes. but O-U-S-P-E-N-S-K-Y. And it's one of the most interesting ways of reading an Inspector Calls. Yeah, think. because so very, very much worth doing a bit of research on. Spensky was a philosopher who argued that when we die, we re-enter our life once again from the beginning. If, unless we learn from our mistakes. So the, the sense that actually our lives become this kind of, so hell for, for Spensky is the suggestion of just reliving your entire, everything you did that was wrong until mm. you make the right decisions. And Priestley was certainly interested, he was reading about this when he was writing this play. And actually you can see the influence on the play, isn't it? That actually Gerald, he tries to get back to how things were. And mm. just then as the ultimate twist in the spectacles is that the telephone call at the end is of a girl being sent to an inf- inf- the infirmary. There's a sense that Gerald, like the older Burlings, is trapped in this, s- what Spencer might have called this kind of cyclical nature of making the same decisions, yeah. r- wrong decisions again and again and again. Unable to free themselves from this loop that they have entered yeah. into. And I think the final point for the essay for me, really, is to think about the fact that he, the lighting in this play, we've talked about this before, is a really useful symbol to look at. It's pink and intimate at the start. When the inspector comes in, it's brighter and harder. And we talked mm. about the connotations of that, the, the pink and intimate world at the start of the play that the inspector shines the light of reality upon. is this mm. this artificial place that doesn't see the realities of society. And the older Burlings and Gerald, they choose never to leave this world. Yeah, they, choose they to, stay in their little doll's house. They stay in their little doll's house. And this brings us to the production that you saw, the Stephen Doldry production, Mr. Galley. Ah, uh, yeah, it was good. Can you tell us, I think this is a nice, a nice point to finish on, a bit of an AO3 point. Um, Gerald, you know, what, what happened in that famous production in 1992 that, again, you saw it when it was revived, didn't you? Well, the, the Burling's house is a kind of elevated doll's house uh, t- looking thing in the middle of this kind of pockmarked, cratered, almost warlike environment in which you've got um sort of young urchin looking children you know sort of homeless children running around in it and um general signs of poverty and the burling's house is elevated above that but it looks artificial it looks like this sort of pretend toy house and at the end quite strikingly it actually rises up on a sort of um hydraulic mechanism and the house all falls apart and sort of explodes onto the stage and it's very uh visually striking i think that's a great a3 point to finish on because it's the sense that actually for people like gerald the only thing priestley is arguing and kind of doldry the director is arguing in his production the only thing that will make them aware of the reality of the world is fire and blood and anguish it's the yeah. second world war yeah absolutely they were too wrapped too- up in the way everything was so ultimately then we're saying you know there's there are hints of a better side of gerald but ultimately his capitalist beliefs and his refusal to change curse him in the same way they curse the older Burlings. And he, in spite of being young, doesn't take the opportunity that the other younger characters take and doesn't become this better person with a chance of escaping yeah. this um, terrible world. And the irony is, of course, it's the two world wars that bring about a huge change to the English class system. If you, if you want yeah. to see the, a, an amazing novel on that, read Brideshead Revisited by Evelyn Ward during this period of quarantine. 
Um, and what you'll see is the, the end of the aristocratic class and what the world wars do to that. Because in that novel, um, it, it looks at the, the plight of Sebastian Flight as this privileged young aristocratic Oxford student. And then looking at this, um, uh, the, the narrator's return to Brideshead, their, their house and what's changed with after the Second World War and how the situation has changed. That'd be a, a brilliant piece of reading to do if you're stuck at home and bored. A bit, bit of wider reading. Well, thank you for joining us today. We, um, as ever, you can access all of our resources at EnglishRevisionPod.co.uk, where you will find uh, episodes on Inspector Calls, Macbeth, Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, language uh, papers, power and conflict poetry, Jekyll and Hyde. We've got. Um, Huge amount of revision pods on there for you to use and hopefully help with your revision. You can follow us on Twitter, please do, at GRevisionPod, which is where we always announce new episodes and things like this. And um, Mr. Forster, where can they email us if they want to get in touch directly? EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com. Very nice. Thank you for joining us today. And we hope you and your families are, of course, keeping well during this incredibly difficult time and we very much hope to see you again on GCSE Revision Pod.